Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to a special episode of the Important Cinema Club. A few weeks ago, we talked about the filmmaker Lizzie Borden, director of Born in Flames and Working Girls. And on that episode, we talked about a film that she's credited with directing in 1992 called Love Crimes, starring Sean Young. And after the episode was released, Lizzie Borden actually reached out to us through email and offered to set the record straight of what actually happened around the making of love crimes. It's a difficult subject for her, and it's a big honor that she chose Justin and myself to talk about it with. If we could just start right from the beginning and ask you, how did love crimes come about? How did you get to that project? Well, there was a script by Alan Moyle that I really liked a lot, and it didn't go to Miramax right away. There was a company called Sovereign, and I think for a while, you know, De Laurentiis had it. But then Harvey Weinstein, Miramax, got involved and they got involved because they wanted to do a, a film with Sean Young, period. So Sean was not my choice, actually. Harvey had met her, apparently, in some other, in some meeting, just a general meeting, and he decided he wanted to make a film with her. So when he got this script, he decided that this was the project. I don't think she read it. And I don't think she read it until we started shooting, but... What actually happened with the script was that by the time we were ready to shoot, uh, Harvey decided he wanted, wanted a completely different script. He wanted some kind of revenge thriller instead of what we were intending to do with the script. What happened was that there had been a rewrite, but then Harvey completely changed his mind about what we wanted. So we ended up starting the film with no script. With with a completely, he completely changed his mind on what he wanted. And it was in Atlanta before the first day of production that Sean Young finally read the script and decided she really didn't like it at all. So we were kind of really in a mess because we had no script and an actor who really didn't like what she read. I realize I mean, now at this point, I should have walked away. You know, I should have, if I could have, just said, this is a nightmare, this cannot happen. But I came from independent film where I I used to edit until something was okay. With, um, With Born in Flames, I basically edited for five years. And it actually was a really short period of time between Born in Flames and Working Girls because I was editing for a really long time. I was editing until the very end of Born in Flames, I mean, actually, until Ulrich Gregor saw it and said, well, if you finish by February, it's in the Berlin Film Festival. So like a a year later or so that I did Working Girls. So I had this kind of naive notion that it could all work out in the end without thinking that there were, okay, there were these two companies, Sovereign and Miramax, who essentially wanted different films. So there I was getting notes from two companies. Then Alan Moyle did a very perverse thing which is very Alan. He then started working for Miramax to basically rewrite the script the other way. He decided, okay, well, I'll write against his own script. So every day I would get these, these pages kind of slipped under the door of the trailer, and I just was paralyzed because I didn't know what to do. It was just really confusing to me, and when you're that confused, you don't even know where the camera should go. It's like, okay, what does this even mean? You know, I really didn't know I had the power to walk away because uh, it was just it was the kind of situation where 
I, I came from two films where I had absolute control to a film where I had really no control. <laughs> That's kind of how it happened. Now, a lot of stuff happened in between. What did your original conception of the film look like compared to the completed film? The completed film, and this is like to jump at the end, and I think this is why I contacted you, because there was never any director's cut. What you see in the completed film was something that was so taken away from me. Like, for example, the flashbacks, I didn't shoot the flashbacks. Kit Carson shot the flashbacks. I think Sovereign um, brought him in because they were really friendly with him because of Bottle Rocket. So they brought him in, and I was totally opposed to them because I just hate that concept of cause and effect, the idea that somebody is a certain way because of things that happened in the past, of psychologistics kind of structuring. By that time, Kit was the one in the editing room, not me. It was Kit. And so um, they brought him in. And then at the very end, Harvey was the one who told me that he would destroy my career if I took my name off the film. And even the so-called director's cut, which was basically just eight minutes of R-rated stuff, that was just a ploy by, you know, Harvey kind of sitting on me and basically saying, well, you know, say it's the director's cut, we'll make it the unrated version just to make up for all the money you lost with your movie. You know, all of that is a myth. And so I think, you know, when you were talking about that, it was, okay, well, there was never really any director's cut. There was never really any ending because the whole concept of this sort of Alan Moyle's original script, which was really so much about the issues of consent, you know, that gray area between, you know, a woman doing something because she chose to the idea of consent, whether or not it could be prosecuted, um, you know, the big holes in the script between in the actual finished film between the DA, Sean Young character, Dana, doing something and then jumping to something else, the areas where she seems really stupid. In the original script, there weren't those holes. It's just that, that what happened as the as the script got more and more chopped up and diluted and no ending end up ended up being shot because Harvey wanted a kind of I think he wanted it there to be a kind of a revenge thriller ending with the Patrick Bergen character being shot, some kind of action thriller thing. And Sovereign didn't want that. They wanted more of a European psychological film. So there was this kind of standoff. I didn't have the experience to know what to do. And so I made a lot of mistakes of my own. You know, obviously, you know, I didn't did not know how to deal with Sean. I don't know that she has worked with a lot of women directors, and I think she would prefer a much more, I don't know, daddy style of directing. <laughs> I think at this point I would know more what to do. Why do you think she chose to do the movie, given that she didn't read the script and was very upset by what she did read? She was getting married, and they were paying her a lot of money. And her assistant, Richard Pierce, read the script. He... And his boyfriend convinced her to do the script that it was really good. And it could also be, to her credit, that she read the really chopped up script that we went to Atlanta with and that maybe she had a very intelligent reaction to this script that was very confused. You know, but I think that, she, well, she actually called it really sick and twisted. So it makes me think that she didn't really read it from the beginning and she really didn't know what she was putting herself into. So it was resistance all the way. And... You know, I had never actually 
worked with anyone who I hadn't chosen to work with. Look, you can say anything you want to about, you know, the quality of acting in working girls because, you know, there's some theater actresses and there are some women who were actually, you know, um, real working girls. And there was a mix of them and born in flames. That was a mix of, you know, a couple of real actors and mostly non-actors, but everyone who was in those two movies wanted to be there. It was a totally different situation here. But ultimately, it's just, you know, I kind of see it as a cautionary story for going into shooting something without a script that is set, you know, that's set that where you do a storyboard where you know what everything means. But I think with Sean, she was making a, a good deal of money. She was about to get married. And that was and she trusted her assistants, you know, to choose for her. She and Patrick never really had any chemistry, but I think mostly that she chose. Well, it was my fault, too. You know, I think, you know, look, if you look at an officer and a gentleman, you know, you heard that Deborah Winger ate garlic. But with this, there wasn't there wasn't a strong script to hang choices on. How did you find the experience on set? Because you mentioned it was very difficult. Was there any bright spots? Were you able to cast anybody or work with any crew? What was interesting was, when I think back on it, the one big battle, and this is something I would have to say to any filmmakers sort of coming out, is you have to choose your battles correctly or rightly. And I, I don't know if I chose my battle right or wrong, but I went up against Harvey one time and won, but it was... Who knows whether it was the right battle or not, because at that point, I don't know whether I should have been walking away. The person he wanted in the role that Arnisha Walker, you know, the black cop, he wanted Robin Givens. And I just thought, oh, my God, she's coming off all this crazy stuff. And I just thought that was stunt casting. And it would have made Sean Young probably be very competitive. And I just said, no, I really want Arnisha Walker. I think she's a better actress, you know, in that moment. And maybe it's better to let Sean be the, you know, shine. He just wanted Robin Givens so badly. And I I think I won that, but I lost the war, you know, whatever war it was. But yes, Arnisha was great. I got along with everyone else. But, you know, every day, I think I had post-traumatic stress disorder even during the time of shooting it because... It didn't mean anything. I remember sitting there thinking, this doesn't mean anything. I would have pages, but unless you know where the pages of the puzzle go when you're sh- you're shooting something, you don't know what it's all going to mean. I mean, it's, it was different with Born in Flames where I was finding what it meant, but I had like strong passions and ideas that were leading me, and I was finding it on the editing table. And with Working Girls, it was, you know, I, it seems like you've done tons of research on like what I've said in my interviews. I always talk about inductive and deductive processes. But with this, I knew I had to please two different companies who wanted two different things. So I didn't know who to please. I didn't know where to go. So no, every day was kind of a nightmare. And I think there are two points of where I could have walked if the script wasn't settled. I don't know what contractually I could have done, but I hear about directors walking off movies all the time. I suppose they just give their salary back or whatever. And then I should have fought Harvey to take my name off the film, even though he then he really threatened me. And it was only after Sean came out as Me Too number 40. And I also heard about him branding uh, women as difficult that I realized that he really did mean it with me because the next like one of the next things I did, which I 
was a really bad experience with, it was on this film called Erotique. I was branded as difficult and was put into, I was locked in a lot of ways. And it was with a man who recut everything and sort of made it his own film. And I don't know where, where my reputation as difficult came from. And I realized that it had to have come from there. It, it all hit me after Sean came out. And I thought, okay, I, I suppose Harvey came through with her by giving her this movie because other women wanted to do it. I mean, I had a meeting with Natasha Richardson, for example, she, who took me to high tea. She really wanted to do this film, but that was made impossible. Just, you, you know, you can't go back. You know, you just have to think, wow, let's say Alan Moyle's script had been followed. You know, Laurie Frank did a rewrite, but even so it didn't change Alan Moyle's original concept. If you can imagine Alan Moyle, very, twisty and very dark but very consistent because all his films have a consistency but when he you know started in on it it just was everyone everyone in on it so yeah i know there was nothing good about the experience at all and it's just taken me many years to get out of it and i think the me too movement you know I, i've always thought that you know what happened to me was minor because you know, look, Harvey never exposed himself to me. When I made Working Girls, all I knew about was that he threw chairs at people, and I knew about his temper. During the time of love crimes, he was mostly in New York, and I would run into him, and he'd be in the deli, and he'd have say, oh, don't tell Eve. You know, he was buying a pastrami sandwich. You know, that was about it. He didn't hear about anything sexual at all. You know, and, I mean, he never... In terms of what I've heard, he never bothered anyone like me, you know, or anyone, you know, I was too old, like I said, and I wrote a piece, you know, about it, but I was like, not in his age range, not in that kind of level of looks range, not, you know, thank God, but it was still that idea of power where he could call someone difficult and people would ask him how people were. And the, the fact that Sean was that, he stayed in New York, but his his influence was completely over the film because he was the American distributor, and he's the one who made it happen. So it was just, you know, I think, I think the thing, the reason I wrote to you was that I think mostly because I no longer want to be held responsible for those awful flashbacks. Well, if I could just ask about the flashbacks a little bit, uh, the flashbacks sort of depict Sean Young's character as a child witnessing the abuse of her mother at her father's hands. And uh, the finished film tries to show how this influences her sexuality later. Was anything in the flashbacks, any of her Sean Young's childhood, part of the original concept of the film? No, not at all. I think that what happened was that I think they needed, at a certain point in post-production, they felt they needed to explain her in some way. That was at a point where it was Kit Carson, and I forgot his wife's name, always in a cloud of cigarette smoke coming in, and they basically took over the editing. It was not really me anymore. They decided that they needed a, an explanation for, well, why would she, why would she do this? Why would she go after this kind of character? So the script changed in post-production as well. You know, cause I, you know, I'm somebody who really believes that you write on the editing machine as in Born in Flames. And so that whole backstory idea um, was sort of invented after the film was shot. And I think part of it was because they didn't have an ending. 
And because they didn't have an ending, it had to kind of delve, I think, this was their rationale, into what made her do what she did. I think it was a kind of joke for Kit Carson because I think he made the woman look a lot like his ex-wife, Karen Black. Drama going on between Kit and Karen at that time, you know, about their son. So I thought, I thought they looked really sleazy and just horrible. But it was my opinion, but I just sort of developed an opinion about erotic thrillers in general, which is, and part of the reason also I haven't done anything that I haven't wanted to do and really, really studied screenplay structure. Well, erotic thrillers are always about women being punished for a sexual transgression and, or men, but mostly women. And I just feel like, you know, I don't want to do those at this point. You know, it just feels like a negative, a negative thing and hard to avoid stereotypes. But yeah, no, none of that was in the original script. I don't even know if I have a uh, copy anywhere, well, certainly not on my computer, of Alan's original script that fascinated me. Alan really went far. And I, I don't know that anybody would have made that original script. It had to be softened somewhat. But go from where he was to when it got greenlit to then what Harvey wanted just before we went off to shoot. It was just so radically different. Now knowing what I know in terms of, you know, I never went to film school, but knowing what I know, there would be no way to even break down the film in terms of what should be shot when with a script that had so many moving parts. When the production was finished, you mentioned that you wanted to take your name off of it. Did you make a decision or try to uh, get new projects started off the ground right away? Or how was... When I, when I tried to, Harvey basically said, I will destroy you if you take your name off this. And almost in those words, but in some ways I was destroyed anyway because of the reaction to this film. It was so negative. And, you know, you know the cliche, which is that women get one big flop, men get three. So, um, yes, I would, I've been trying for many, many years to make that same film about a woman running an abortion clinic because it was while I was doing like the film festival tour with uh, working girls in, that I started to develop that idea. And so I had a script. I mean, the script has evolved. I mean, it's a different script now than when Susan Sarandon was involved with it. And of course, it's difficult, oh my God, because of the subject matter. Uh, and yes, I was given some chances to make other erotic thrillers, but that would have just been, that would have been a cliche for me to do. And as I said, I don't like the genre. It, it just would have been making a film to make a film. And, you know, I don't know if that was the right decision or not. I decided that what I had to learn so this never happened again was I had to master the screenplay structure so that if this ever happened to me again, I would know that if anything had to be changed in the script, I would know how to solve the problem. You know, if there had to be a script change, I would really know, okay, we can do this and this changes because everything is like a house of cards. You, know, you change some pages here. It has an effect, like a ripple effect all the way down to the end of the script. And because I hadn't gone to film school, I didn't know that. If I look back, I realize that both Born in Flames and Working Girls kind of have, have classical three act structures, which are kind of intuitive. I didn't know how they got to be that way. I think mostly because I was editing both and I edited them until they ended up that way. And during Love Crimes, because I was being given pages from both companies and I wasn't ever sure where I was in the process, 
I couldn't even, and why the shooting is as flat and awful, awful looking. So I, how do you know what camera angle to choose when you don't know how it's going to fit in the hole? You don't know where, what it's going to cut to, you know? And so in the meantime, I sort of thought, okay, I'm going to really study screenwriting. And uh, instead of just jumping into something else, I mean, I, at that point, TV was not super hip. So I did a couple of little TV things, but the kind of TV things, except for Zalman King, who was great. You'd think he wouldn't be, but he was just great. Whereas doing awful stuff like Silk Stockings was, it was just ridiculous. And then my agent at the time said, well, you'd have to do a Baywatch. And, you know, I don't, what, I didn't mind the idea of Zalman King because that was honest nudity. But the idea of dollying in on a woman's breasts or her butt to me was total exploitation. So, you know, I just thought, no, just study and learn and try to understand filmmaking the best I can so that when I get the chance to make something like Rialto, which is the film about the abortionist, uh, actually she has a movie theater and it's complex and it's a period piece. I want to be able to do the best job I can and really understand how it works. But I, I guess I was, I really did have PSTD for a long, long time about it. And, you know, I, it's not so much that I had like the fear of Harvey, but I think it was ingrained in a lot of us. You know, you just don't say anything. And then when I read about all these accounts of these women who were truly hurt by him or the way that Selma Hayek was abused during shooting, that didn't happen to me. I mean, Harvey wasn't there abusing me on the set, telling me I was horrible or whatever. It wasn't like that. But he did tell me that I couldn't take my name off of it. And I think taking my name off it would have really helped. I never spoke about it, really, because I just felt that the idea of just having a hard time setting something up does not match the torment that these women had who were sexually abused or raped by Harvey. That, to me, it just, there is no match for that, or no match for what Salma Hayek went through, you know, uh, where he so abused her uh, on a day-to-day level that it, it really devastated her. This was minor compared to that, you know, and I realized, okay, I just have to hang in there, you know, and just do a film I'm really proud of that I think deals with issues that are complex and meaningful. But I think for the first time, you know, now that Kid is dead and and Sean has, she made that incredible revelation, things, pieces just started to fit together in my mind about, you know, Harvey wanting a certain person in this movie, but why he wouldn't allow, you know, an actress like Natasha Richardson or somebody who could have elevated it, him wanting another, another ending and kind of, you know, really going in another direction. I should have been smart enough in so many ways. I should have, you know, uh, walked off or put my foot down or something else. I think that would have been the only solution to this because, you know, maybe at some point publishing Alan Moyle's original screenplay for this could be interesting. Something to do if I can find Alan. I think he's somewhere in Canada. I think he had some kind of illness. I'm not sure, but Alan as an interesting person. You know, and I think he would just laugh gleefully at this account of him. Well, you know, the aspect of love crimes that I think is the most interesting is that gray area stuff. And oddly enough, uh, Justin and I read a number of the reviews at the time the movie came out, and rather consistently, they attack the movie on, on that. Many of them talk about, 
oh, it's as if the movie is uh, saying that all sex is dirty or something like that. But that's the part of the movie that now strikes me as the most resonant and contemporary part of it. You know, that is interesting because I was trying to go to that point of why not go after men who destroy women, even if it's not actually considered a crime. That to me was always interesting, which is still to me very much a question, you know, not saying that all sex is necessarily dirty, but what if a man does make a woman feel good and then destroys her, what is she supposed to feel? And why won't they prosecute? And then a woman who feels she has to go after him. It was much more of an interesting cat and mouse game. Alan's film was so much more an interesting play between the two two characters. And then that got all taken away by the idea that it had to be like a revenge film in some way. And if there had been, let's say, two actors who had some real fascinating kind of play with each other and you know i've been able to get that or go there i think there could have been an interesting film made from that but with all of the forces operating outside that preventing that that could not have happened at all and then i guess i keep going back to those flashbacks which then make it on some level about a very distorted person it may have been a, uh, some kind of an answer to Harvey's wanting it to be about why she wanted revenge. The European company saying, okay, we're not going to shoot the revenge thriller ending, but let's show why she wants revenge because this happened to her in her past. You know, for me reading about that there was a director's cut, you know, when there really wasn't, it was really about nine minutes of what might have made it uh, an X-rated movie. You know, that to me was just a misnomer or even lie. So that's why I was hoping that all of the VHS copies would just slowly disappear. I was actually shocked to find out that the film is in various archives. You know, I feel like writing to the archives and saying, oh, never show this film ever, but it's not in my power. I think it belongs to various companies. <laughs> but I think I don't think there's going to be any call for it soon. <laughs> You're someone who, born, you know, Born in Flames has recently been restored. I think there's been a lot of interest in your work lately. Mm. And... I think people who seek out love crimes are going to give it the benefit of the doubt. It would be great if they knew that it isn't really mine in so many ways, you know, that it was so tampered with. And it actually, the other thing, too, was that, you know, it was Alan's script originally. It wasn't written by me. And that, I think, has become something uh, of importance to me, that it's important for me to write something. You know, it's important for me to at least co-write something or work with a writer, you know, more closely because, you know, when something is taken out of your hands that way by so many different people, you know, by executives from a company who are writing. I mean, I can't tell you how many sheets of paper got put under my door and I'm comparing them like, oh, do I shoot this company's notes or do I shoot that company's notes? Like what gets shot? I mean, it's just at a certain point. When is it your film? Is it your film because it's the writing? Is it your film because it's the editing? Is it your film because of, you know, because of what exactly? And then I definitely have wanted much more of a visual style and then not having a map of where it goes sort of took that possibility away. And definitely I had wanted my first bigger experience. I mean, it wasn't really a Hollywood film because it was it was financed through a European company, then with a domestic distributor. I had definitely wanted to work with actors, at least who I want could 
collaborate with because my style is more collaborative. You know, it's not tough ass, you know, and that didn't happen. You know, although I did, you know, get along with the other actors. But if you don't if you don't get along with everyone and create an atmosphere of collaboration generally, it becomes really difficult. And I couldn't have a female director. I mean, a female director of photography that was off the table. So many things were off the table in terms of what I could choose. So you realize what's important to you and the things that going forward you want to fight for, you know, instead of sort of spending your energy fighting for the things that are not the things you should be fighting for. So I see younger women out there making their independent films. And that's great because I think some of the you know best films are independent films coming forward you know, and then I see these incredible women who are, you know, who are able to to make because Catherine Bigelow, for example, she is really strong. She is somebody who approaches each film like it's going to war. She has every element in control. She fights like hell for everything. And um, it's a different kind of personality than ever I would have in a million years. So um, I think, you know, and it's still difficult for her to make films at the rate that I think she could be making films at if she were um, a man, although it is hard to make films now, as you know, you know, I think, you know, with Harvey Weinstein, it was a confluence of things, you know, the fact that the bottom dropped out of that market became diffuse, you know, sort of started putting his energy into theater and fashion instead of just what he was doing. But I don't, you know, that range of filmmaking, eight to 20 or 25 just disappeared. You know, the, I, I know he had his hand in some television, but he didn't have a lot of power there yet. But it's, it's shocking to me. I mean, it's still shocking to me that he did what he did to even women who had ties in the industry, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, women like that. It's, Unbelievable. What have you been doing as far as like cinema work since I believe your last credit on IMDb is Silk Stockings? Oh God, Silk Stockings. Yeah, I haven't really been able to do anything. Like this awful thing, Erotique, which, as I said, the man who made it self-financed it, but said I was difficult. So he went in and recut everything, put his own music on. It was just one of these awful things where there were three directors: um, Monique Wittig and an a, a Chinese director. Monique Wittig and I called her and said, please don't send your material to him because he will just chop it up. So um, mostly I've been writing a lot of things and they go into the closet. I've been writing pilots that don't get made and a lot of um, blinking green lights. But I just have been trying so hard, you know, but, you know, I really I really think that, you know, it it really matters what gets made and not the quantity. You know, if I get to make Rialto, which is this film that almost happened with Susan Sarandon, and now hopefully we're going to go out with to another actress, actor rather, um, soon. If that happens, then I'll feel fine, you know, because I still believe in the issues it's about. You know, and like I think a lot of, of directors, not a lot, but some directors I know really feel like they have to be making films all the time. And I feel like for me, it's it's really what they have to say. So I've been practicing, you know, it's what Malcolm Gladwell in the 10,000 hours, you know, <laughs> I think I've got my 10,000 hours in, in writing. So yeah, I, I work as a script consultant because I really have, I think I do understand structure right now. And I'm you know trying to set things up in terms of series. You know, I've been working with a, 
a stripper named Antonia Crane on a stripper series that's kind of like a modern feminist Western set outside of Palm Springs. So it's just difficult to get things set up and especially difficult because I seem to always choose these like edgy women to be the centers of them and choose you know, a, a, an abortionist. It's So it's hard for me just because of the subject matters that I end up being drawn to. And so I'm always working. It's just that for now, it really hasn't come to fruition necessarily. Because for some reason, I seem to have a battle with just straight line narrative. You know, it has to have more density or there has to be some issue. You know, there has to be some other quality in it. So I guess I have to just shut my closet. Oh, I was just going to say, to your point of what matters is the quality of what you make. I mean, the fact that Born in Flames has had this extraordinary resurgence lately and and that it means so much to so many people, I think, really speaks to that. It's Mm -hmm. been really amazing uh, and kind of stunning to me since the anthology did the uh, restoration. And I've been I've been traveling for a couple of years with it, and it's extraordinary to talk to like millennials and Generation Z or whatever the really young kids are called now in different countries, you know, South Korea, and so I guess from for me like both A Born in Flames and Working Girls end with question marks, you know, like well what happens after, you know, with Born in Flames it was really a kind of a, a like a pull from the Battle of Algiers, although not as good of course, but. What happens like after the last shot is, well, all the women get rounded up and arrested, but hopefully there will be more women who are continuing with the revolution. And with working girls, the question at the end is, well, what is she going to do for money? You know, is she going to get a regular job? Is she going to, is she going to take up Elliot on his offer? What is she going to do? Is she going to end up going back? Cause it's really about money. You know, the best compliment I ever got was a guy coming to me and saying, I had a boss just like that. It's about labor. I really love the idea of, of film as questions. So Born in Flames asking those questions and me being able to listen to all of these people, well, young and old, sort of talking about the politics in their country and it happening just as Trump was elected and hearing all of this, it was my activism, you know, because I'm really quite shy. So that was amazing. The film I did before that, which was this little film that I don't really talk about much, regrouping, is being restored by um, the anthology. And I'm talking to a couple of places about uh, the restoration of Working Girls because it's actually Miramax lost like 14 prints of it. I don't know how they did that, but they're gone. And so it's really not available to be seen. So, you know, I'm really trying to figure out what to do with that because it really does need some way for people to see it other than pirated. And because always the sink is off so badly. Not that I mind pirated stuff sometimes. You know, I've, I've sort of let Born in Flames be, be pirated once in a while just because I, I really haven't felt that it's gotten to the audience it was intended for way back when. Yeah, it's been kind of amazing. And I always feel this kind of notion that a film has to deal with issues without you know, fist in the air kind of notion about it. Otherwise, I would make documentaries. And I I, I feel like I don't want to be necessarily focused in that way to make documentaries that you have to follow the subject exactly. I sort of take a subject and then go in my way using sometimes documentary techniques. But with Rialto, which is, you know, set in the 50s about a woman running a movie theater, she gets in trouble with the Catholic Church because 
she's attacked by the Legion of Decency because of the movies she shows, which actually happened in the 50s. But in the basement, she is doing abortions. And so it's more complicated than that. But unfortunately, it's a period piece, which means I can't do it for $100,000. It's my lack of imagination that I haven't written something I can do for $100,000, which I think I could do tomorrow. So if you guys have written something for $100,000, <laughs> I think Justin has. Yeah, yeah. I have definitely. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much uh, for answering all our questions. That was very informative. And thanks for reaching out. We really appreciate it. It's frankly a great honor that you chose us as a venue to talk about this. And we're great admirers of your work. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You know, I really, uh, the only reason I, I reached out was that you were so, the things you said about Born in Flames and Working Girls and the way that you actually tried so hard to find a way to like love crimes really touched me and so I just felt like I wanted to say these things to you and only you know I just thought like you would listen really openly and so I really appreciate it and thank you oh no problem thanks so much it's a great honor